G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. The Story Dad was in the ministry and Dad was often in his office working, preparing sermons or counselling or seeing people. And much of that time I remember being told to stay quiet, stay out of Dad's way. And within a couple of years I began to feel that other people were ministered to more deeply than I was. And, you know, sometimes I just wanted a hug and just to be heard and I wasn't. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Kathy Scott is the author of the book The Road to Zimkasalia. Now, you might be thinking, where in the world is Zimkasalia? Well, it's actually not a country, but a combination of the many places in the world that Kathy has lived, including Zimbabwe, Kenya, South Africa, and then finally ending up here in Australia. The book also traces Kathy's own personal journey through fear, failure and loss. And Kathy will share her life story with us today as she has a chat with Eric Scatterbo. Welcome to the program, Kathy Scott. Thank you very much for having me. Glad to have you with us and you're joining us from your home in the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne, is that right? Yes, in Belgrave South. Okay, and that's a long way from where you were born in Zimbabwe. But I should say that the name of your book is called The Road to Zimkasalia, but road is spelt R-H-O-D-E. Why is that? Well, I was born in what was Rhodesia, and that became Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. Then I lived in Kenya, and I lived in South Africa, and I lived in Australia. So it's The Road to Zimkasalia, which is a story of my journey, geographically as well as everything else. Your personal journey, your personal inner life journey, I guess we could say. So it all starts off in what was then known as Rhodesia. What was life like growing up there? Well, it wasn't an easy life growing up. It was a country that was at war when I was a child. Mm -hmm. It was at war because it had been a country that was originally a British colony, Mm -hmm. and then it was under white minority government. And there was a war by the black people in the country. They wanted to rule their own country. And so it was a really tough guerrilla warfare. And Mm. um, there's obviously always two sides to every story. Mm. And what I grew up with was a lot of fear, a lot of um, awareness that we lived in a place where if we drove outside of town, we could get an ambush. And so life was impacted by that war pretty much until I turned about 14-ish or so. So you grew up with nightmares of possibly being kidnapped. Is that right? Yes, I did. That was one of the recurring nightmares I had as a child. You know, we lived in the country in small towns for the first few years of my life. Dad was a um, a consultant to farmers and um, he'd come and go and come and go and the roads were all dirt roads and there'd be a lot of dust when a vehicle went past and I just actually thought that I'd be left behind one day. Uh, That was one of the fears and in that same home, I felt that if someone had come and um, a big bus would start out, come and park outside and somebody would come inside to get me. And so I'd dream that this was happening and I'd wake up hiding under the bed, pretty afraid that someone was coming to get me and take me away. I think I'd just, like, you know, as a child, you can pick up on things without yeah. even realizing what you're picking up on. 
Well, that had to be traumatizing for a youngster to yeah. live with the fear of possibly being kidnapped at any time. Yeah, yeah. So I think there was this fear of, of the unknown, really. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, you know, there was always a possibility of something happening. You don't know what that something might be. So you live with an awareness and an alertness that we definitely don't have to live with in this country, Australia. We can live a very relaxed life here in comparison to what I grew up with. And what was it like just going for a ride in the car? Um, Well, if we were just going out within the towns, it was fine. But um, in the really full-on war years, you wouldn't drive between towns. Once every couple of years, we'd travel to South Africa for a holiday. And Mm. you would queue up for a convoy with an armoured car at the front and an armoured car at the back. And they'd put the slowest vehicles at the front. So we'd go their pace, like the caravans. And Mm. then you would uh, travel like that. And... um, I remember we missed the convoy one time and uh, dad raced to get to the convoy and then we had a tire or something happened and we, he made us all lie in the ditch while he repaired whatever it was he had to repair on the car and I just remember lying there and he was saying, keep your heads down, stay out of sight and um, we were lying there thinking, but you're exposed up on the road repairing the vehicle. Oh, right. <laughs> um, Look, there were lots of little incidences, and we had a few stories. Other people had much worse stories than we did. Um, So getting back to your father, he wanted you to be safe. So if anything happened, if he was ambushed, they wouldn't know about where you were. Is that the idea? Yeah. Well, hopefully, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We wouldn't be sitting, you know, easily visible for any pot shots. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Definitely a different kind of upbringing than we would be used to here in Australia. Yes, definitely. So that gave you some fears and nightmares in your childhood, but also you had some other challenges in your childhood. Uh, Yeah, look, I grew up in a beautiful Christian home. However, it was a home where dad was very heavily into ministry, uh, pastoring a church for a few years, and I became quite insecure. We moved around a lot. I was always the new kid. And this insecurity made me feel worthless, I guess, and became Mm. like a filter through which I viewed the world and my life. And um, so I became really quite negative about everything. Do you think you resented the fact that you were moving around a lot and that your father didn't have much time for you? I think so. You know, um, my parents were good parents. They did the best they knew how. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, they, they worked particularly dad, very authoritative, The rules were very important, and we just had to toe the line. Do you think the rules were more important than you were? I I don't think he thought that, but I I think that's how it came across sometimes. Mm. I think it was his way of loving us, you know. I know Mm. they they really believed in tough love, and and sometimes he was just trying to protect us. But Mm. when you're young and you're a insecure person, sometimes those rules just feel restrictive in you. And I began to feel very unheard. Now, do you have a story to illustrate the feeling that you weren't being heard? Yes, while Dad was um, in the ministry, obviously we, we lived in the church manse, the, the property that the church owned, and mm. there was an office attached, and Dad was often in his office working, preparing sermons or counseling or seeing people. And much of that time I remember being told to stay quiet, stay out of Dad's way, and yet at the same time, he would bring home homeless people and house them. And so I didn't quite get it then, but within a couple of years, I began to feel and be able to identify that I felt that other people were ministered to more deeply than I was. And, you know, sometimes I just wanted to hug and just to be heard, and I wasn't. 
I didn't feel I was. Yeah, you just wanted a hug from your dad. Yeah. And that's definitely got to be a dilemma for anybody in ministry. You need to have that balance between ministering to others, but not forgetting to minister to your own family, I guess, would be the healthy yeah. balance that yeah. you need to have. That's right, yeah. And look, you know, it's easy to let that happen when you're busy mm. and you've got great, wonderful things happening in your yeah. own ministry. It's it's easy to you think you're seeing your kids and, mm-hmm. and yet it can still happen. Mm. Um, and I think also because I was a creative person, I didn't recognize that I was creative at the time, but I was musical and mm-hmm. I loved my music, but it was something that dad was a disciplinarian about that you know you will do this and you will practice this and you will get it right and you must practice but it was not music I really enjoyed at the time I was forced to do the lessons but um, what I really wanted to do was be more expressive with the type Mm. of music that wasn't heard um, and it became a chore yeah I can hear the conflict here you're kind of the creative free expression type and your dad was more the stickler for just get it right yeah yeah that's very that's probably very right yeah that's correct You're listening to The Story. Today, Eric Scadabo is chatting with Kathy Scott, who's the author of the book, The Road to Zimkasalia, Navigating Through Fear, Failure and Loss. As we're hearing, Kathy grew up in Zimbabwe and felt like she was never heard by her parents. We'll hear more of Kathy's story when we return. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax, and this is The Story. We're back with more of Kathy Scott sharing her life journey that began in the country formerly known as Rhodesia and now is known as Zimbabwe. As we heard before the break, Kathy grew up feeling unheard and misunderstood by her parents. Now we'll hear more of Kathy's story as she continues her chat with Eric Scadamo. Okay, so you're growing up feeling unheard and a bit insecure and also yeah. fearful because of being in a war-torn country. Any other things mm. going on inside of your heart at that point in your life? Well, I think because of the need to feel accepted and feel at home, I began to feel that I needed to connect with with boys, so relationships. And, you know, they were all quite light-hearted flings at that point in my life, but mm. I, I felt that that was, you know, that was something where I felt loved. And so that was obviously one way I tended to focus my attention. When looking back now, I can see that clearly at the time I couldn't. Hmm. Um, I did have a faith in God. And um, as a young person, even at the age of seven, I gave my heart to the Lord. Mm-hmm. But I also, uh, it was in my teens that I began to really experience what God was. And so I was in this wrestle, I guess, mm-hmm. feeling that I wanted a deeper relationship with God who who I knew was real, I didn't doubt that ever. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I wasn't, I was desperately wanting to be loved in the flesh by somebody, you know. Mm. Um, my mom and dad were fantastic. Honestly, I don't mean to speak negatively of them. They did the best they knew how. And I know they loved me. I never doubted that they mm. loved me. And I know they prayed for me. But at the same time, they didn't listen. I mm. think that was part of it. They didn't just sit and chat and listen. I could talk more easily to my mum. 
but I couldn't talk to my dad. It sounds like there was kind of a, a void that you were trying to fill. Would that be a fair way of summing yes, it up? Yes, that would probably be true. Yeah, yeah. But you weren't summing it up in a healthy way, but in relationships with boys that weren't so healthy? Yeah. Would that be fair? At that point, there was nothing unhealthy about them. I okay. was probably just a bit interested in boys a bit more than I should have. Probably typical of the age to some extent. Mm-hmm. However, at the age of 15, I was a week away from turning 16. Dad joined World Vision in Nairobi, Kenya. Mm-hmm. And that was a time in my life where I had finally begun to feel like I belonged somewhere. And I had I had a youth group and a church I loved. I had a lot of friends. Mm-hmm. And we were moved and I had no say in the matter, even though I whinged and cried and moaned about it. Um, we moved to Kenya and I was taken away from my entire network of friends and support, moved into a different school, different groups of people, different culture of people. Hmm. Kenya is a very, uh, Nairobi very cosmopolitan. I was in a British school. I hung out with American missionaries on the weekends and I found myself desperate for connection with the people back home and we didn't even have a telephone. Hmm. So there was no communication other than actual written letters. Yeah, so you're um, suddenly uprooted from everything yeah. you know at the formative age in your teenage years yeah. of 16. Yeah, yeah. And during this time, my mother had got cancer as well. So mm. um, at the age of 37, I think it was, she was diagnosed with cancer. So I was 14 around then and she was at one point given only weeks to live. And I wasn't told the whole story up front. I was given hints of the story and I was the eldest of three. And I remember just thinking, oh my goodness, we can't not have mum. Dad's always angry and he's always stressed and he's Mm. always worried. And how will we cope, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, thankfully mum had surgery and things, you know, improved. But while we lived in Kenya, she got cancer again. And um, she was pretty ill, but she did come through it. And um, many people prayed for her at that time. And um, there was always a joke about mum that mum made that uh, people must have thought she was extra extra sinful because she had people from all walks of life coming to visit her. Dad at, the, at one point was involved in a multi-church connection group that basically allowed them to communicate with each other so that it, there wasn't the segregation between congregations. Um, Mm. It was a collective of people. So mum had people from Jewish rabbis to Catholic priests to Pentecostal ministers coming to pray for her. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, that's interesting. (laughs) And there was always this joke, gosh, the the staff must wonder what's going on. You know, this woman has people from all walks of life coming to pray with her. Mm. But the thing is that mum was actually restored to good health for Mm. many more years after that. but during that time, after we'd been in Kenya for a while, I was just pining for to go back to Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. Where all your friends were. That's right, yeah. And so, finally, at the end of my O-levels, which was a British Cambridge qualification, I went back and they put me into boarding school. And having never experienced boarding school at all, I found it the most difficult thing. I was uh, stuck in this place where <laughs> no freedom and um, mm. just many more rules, yeah. yeah. And um, I don't know if it was just a t- thing of the age, but my parents were very much sticklers for rules mm. and regulations and all of that. And I became very, um, uh, I guess I was angry. I was angry with them. I was hurt. I felt unheard again. Mm. Could you visit your parents or could they visit you? 
No, actually in the April, and I hadn't seen them since uh, I think it was the beginning of January, they arrived in Zimbabwe to visit for a holiday mm -hmm. and we were allowed one weekend out per term. I had my one weekend out of the boarding school already before they arrived. And because of the rules, they could visit me at the school, not even in my room. I had to visit, had to talk to them outside in the garden. For about two hours, I could see them. That was and it. And I hadn't seen them. Yep, that was it. And I remember just begging them to let me go for the weekend, at least, to go and visit my grandparents where they were staying with my sister and brother as well. And I just remember thinking, I just desperately want to be with my family. Yeah. But because I had already used up my weekend and my parents were stickler for rules, there was no exception. And I watched them drive away and I just cried my eyes out. Yeah. And felt completely abandoned, felt, yeah. felt unloved, yeah. And I know that that wasn't what they wanted me to feel, but I think that's, that's definitely how I felt. <laughs> yeah. So once again, you're getting communicated the message that rules are more important than your emotional well-being. In a sense. Yeah, well, that's what I took from it. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's what I took from it. These days, I think they do things a whole lot differently. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot more emphasis on well-being now than when I was at school. Okay, so you're at school, you're at this boarding school, and you're getting more and more frustrated and not being heard. What happened next? Well, um, I was in a relationship with a guy that had got too deeply involved, and I actually just decided one day, well... I'm going to leave school because I hate it here. Nobody will let me do anything. My parents are not hearing me. I'm mm. just going to leave. No one can stop me. I turned 18 and I figured in my head that I was 18. No one could force me. Mm. So having been somebody who'd always been a rule follower, that was a very big thing for me. Oh, yeah. To, to now go against the rule and be the rebel. Mm. But I did. I actually packed up my bags, got picked up and left the school and I didn't return. It was a very traumatic time and uh, we actually traveled in the car and went to South Africa for a, a week or so and then I came back and I moved into the YWCA. And who did you go with? I went with my boyfriend at the time. Mm -hmm. So we traveled, just, just we just got away and um, went away and came back within a few days and I found myself a job, I was working there. But very soon our relationship broke down mm -hmm. and um, I really struggled with that and decided to move to South Africa. I'm just putting myself in your, your parents' shoes at this point. They're very <laughs> sticklers for rules. Yes. You just took off with a boy. That's right. Yep. That was a big shock to them. Yeah. They, they were horrified, of course, mm -hmm. um, but I think, honestly, I know that my parents' prayers carried me through that time. Mm -hmm. I think they realized that they weren't anywhere close to force me physically to do anything, you know, and they couldn't actually stop me. So, I think they got to a point where they were just desperately praying for me, mm -hmm. and I'm very grateful for their prayers because I know those prayers carried me through. Yeah. So, at this point, you had been a, a good Christian girl. But you were rebelling yeah. and doing things you knew were That's wrong. Right. That's right. Mm -hmm. I think I'd got to the point where I was like, well, it doesn't seem to matter whether I do the right thing or the wrong thing. So what the heck? No one's going to care. Mm. And I know that they cared. Mm. They, they let me know that. But at the same time, I was 18, wanting to experiment with the world, wanting to get out there and do mm. some of my, make my own choices. Mm. And... Um, 
you know, one of the things I've learned in life is that, that we make agreements and what we make agreements with in the spirit can manifest in the natural, in the, in the flesh. And I made agreements that my parents were, I guess I had decided my parents were not for me, so they must be against me. And so for quite a while, I was not wanting to communicate much with them. Hmm. I was hurt. In your hurtness, yeah. I mean, a lot of times when we're hurt, we make mistakes and have poor judgment. Absolutely. That's right. Yep. And I took it very personally. I never once considered what they as parents must be feeling. Hmm. And as a parent now, I can I can and understand they must have been in incredible grief over me. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, they must have been devastated to know that their good Christian girl was now running off with boys and, and making poor choices. That's right. Anyway, I ended up leaving Zimbabwe and going to visit South Africa, um, mm. where I knew another guy that was a friend from youth group days, and he'd invited me to visit. And so I went and decided, well, my relationship's broken down, I'm going to go. So I took myself off to South Africa. And through him, I met my husband. Mm. And um, I got very confused because this other guy and I had a brief fling, and um, then that didn't work and then he actually suggested to this guy that this guy look after me and take me out which he did and straight away David became the person that listened to me he listened to mm. my stories he listened which was just what you were looking for yeah and, and finally you're for being the first heard time that's right for the first time in a long time I felt listened to because he was mm -hmm. a man of few words mm -hmm. and I obviously I had plenty to, <laughs> to speak <laughs> you were compensating <laughs> <laughs> and and you know he listened and he accepted me and he loved me anyway mm -hmm. and within a very short time we decided to date and uh, then we got engaged and within a short time I was actually pregnant now, again, I was in this downward spiral of what the heck have I done? Now what will mum and dad think of me? And this is just the worst thing I could have done. And I, I had a lot of self-hatred and worthless mm. feelings. Mm. Um, I was in a place where I just couldn't believe that I had done this again. And, and now I had a little baby coming. And this wonderful man, I said to him, so oh, are you going to leave me? And he said, no not at all. I'm going to stick with you. This is my child too. Was David a Christian at the time? Yes. Yeah. We both were, but we were not close to God at that mm -hmm. point in time. And he has stuck with me and we've been married over 36 years now, 36 and a half years. And what an incredible man of God he is. I'm so thankful God sent him into my life because I believe that's what happened. So it wasn't uh, the way your parents would have written the script or the way God would have wanted it to go, but no. in the end, you've been together over 35 years, as you mentioned. 36, yeah. yeah. At our wedding, um, we actually both overheard someone say that they'd give us a year and our relationship would be over. Oh, yeah, because they're seeing this young couple with you pregnant, getting married. Yeah. Uh, I guess sometimes they refer to that as a shotgun wedding. Yes, yeah. Yep. And they're thinking, oh, well, I give them a year. Is that kind of what they were saying? Yeah, it probably is, yes. Mm -hmm. And um, so we actually had both heard it. And that night on our wedding night, we, we chatted about it and we just decided that we would make a new start. And so we prayed together and we committed our marriage to God. 
and we decided that, okay, well, we've made mistakes, but we already know that God's got grace and mercy and he can forgive us and he can make something good out of something that didn't start well. So we committed our marriage to him and we also agreed that we would never threaten each other with the word divorce or anything like that. Now, I can tell you there's been times where that has come to mind, <laughs> but it's never, in reality, it's been a tough trot for some of the years. But because of the, the soul ties that were that I had to have cut off through prayer ministry in, in years you know later, etc. But God really has restored what was broken and done something beautiful in our lives. And um, yeah, we've been very blessed. So that was the beginning of your marriage, which continues to this day. We're going to have to stop it right there yep. because we've run out yep. of time for this first conversation. Can we have you come back again next time to share more of your story? Yes, absolutely. Well, that was part one of Eric Scadabo's conversation with Kathy Scott, the author of the book The Road to Zimkasalia, Navigating Through Fear, Failure and Loss. We invite you to join us again next time to hear more of her personal journey. Meanwhile, to find out more about Kathy and her book, you can go to her website, Kathy with a C Scott.com.au. That's Kathy Scott.com.au. Finally, it was great to hear what Kathy shared at the end when she said that God had restored what was broken in her and her husband's lives and has done something beautiful. Their marriage got off to a rocky start, but God is a God of restoration. As it says in the Bible, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness and our relationship with him will be restored. Kathy's life at this point in her story reminds me of a sign I recently read that says, who you are becoming is more important than who you've been. As we heard, Kathy will be the first to admit that in her brokenness, she made mistakes, like all of us have. But God is a God of grace and forgiveness and will help us become something greater than we could have ever imagined if we allow Him to work in our lives. Well, next time, we're going to hear more of how God has been working in Kathy's life as she shares more of her story. Until then, I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. My brother, who was living with us at the time, was really struggling with his mental health, and he had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. And he was traumatized. We'd all lost mum recently, and then, you know, you know, we'd had a miscarriage, and now Jesse had died. And that day, we sat around the dining room table that night, and, and Jim came in, and he said, well, you won't see me in the morning. And I said, why? And he said, because I've had enough. Kathy Scott is the author of the book, The Road to Zimkasalia, Navigating Through Fear, Failure and Loss. And she'll join us once again to share more of her story of going from being a hurt, unheard teenager to being a strong, confident Christian who's blessing others. That's Kathy Scott sharing more of her story next time. The Story. The story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life.